Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting the productivity show. LinkedIn jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, interests, even how open they are to new opportunities. For $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash TPS. That's linkedin.com slash TPS. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to The Productivity Show, the Asian efficiency podcast dedicated to helping you make the most of your time, attention, energy, and focus. I'm joined today by productivity expert, Chris Bailey. Chris is the international best-selling author of The Productivity Project, and most recently, his second book, Hyperfocus, How to Be More Productive in a World of Distraction. Chris writes about productivity at alifeofproductivity.com and speaks to organizations around the globe on how they can become more productive without hating the process. Fast Company has called him a productivity mastermind, and the TED Talks organization said that he might be the most productive man you'd ever hope to meet. In this episode, I'm thrilled to have Chris join me to talk about the idea of hyperfocus and how you can manage your attention in order to be more productive. You can find links to everything that we share in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 213. And now, on with the show. Chris Bailey, welcome back to The Productivity Show. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be back. (laughs) Absolutely. So you've been on the podcast a couple other times. Most recently was episode 121, which I think was when... This is going to be 2.13 when this, uh, when this airs. So it's been a while. And the last time you were on, you were talking about your previous book, The Productivity Project, which I really enjoyed. But you've got another book, which by the time this airs is going to be published, called Hyperfocus. And I'm really excited to dive into this one. Yeah, me too, man. Th- this is like, uh, honestly, uh, w- one idea like this comes along, I-, I think, every few years where you're so pumped to to like talk about it that the energy just seems to to build and build and build. So I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So before we get into the, the topic of the, the book itself, uh, I'm kind of curious what inspired this topic for you? Was there an incident? Like I know the, the last time when you're talking about the productivity project, you mentioned the, uh, the fall that you had when you were in Ireland. Uh, hopefully there wasn't a, uh, a disaster that uh, really inspired this book. And this was just something that was uh, speaking to you. But uh, what's kind of the story behind this? The, the story, Well, it, it comes from a, it wasn't a fall, but it was kind of a, a little dip in my productivity. Uh, once the productivity project came out, it was doing well, it was out in a bunch of languages. But I noticed that my own focus began to falter. Uh, I became more distracted throughout the day. I tended to email notifications more often. I And I couldn't really focus as well as I could when I was on a deadline. And I, I looked at the advice that I was giving in that book, and a lot of it was centered around this idea of uh, resisting distractions and focusing on just one thing at one time. And it worked well when I was on a deadline, but a- after the deadline passed, uh, I noticed that the the amount of focus that I had for the work that I was doing passed as well. And so I thought, maybe there's a bigger picture that exists somewhere with regard to our attention. And if I'm 
in this state of distraction, while the advice that, that I've been giving and that I've been reading about from other productivity experts sounds good on the surface, maybe there's a bigger solution out there. So that, that was kind of the, and I don't know if it, you know, looking at the productivity project, it was a similar deep dive where I poured over hundreds of uh, research papers. It's hard to read a research paper from front to back. I, I feel a lot of people say they do, but I really, I, I had like, you know, uh, you, you know, in the crime show where somebody has uh, like pictures attached to string, attached to a map, attached to memos to piece together a solution to a crime. Uh, my office became a, a similar thing where, uh, you know, I was piecing together this research and the interviews that I was conducting with experts around the world um, to to a lot of experiments that I conducted on myself where the gaps existed in the research, all, all in the service of trying to build a more complete picture that hadn't been built before about how we can focus more deeply. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the advice that I encountered, a lot of it was counterintuitive. Uh, a lot of it was common sense, but most of it helped me out quite a bit in that regard. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you you called that out because you're right. Going through all those research papers, uh, that's definitely not something I look forward to. And that's one of the things that I really like about hyperfocus because you gave me an advanced copy so that I could read it prior to this this interview and I really like your style I think it's very approachable you read something like flow by Mihaly who you uh, you actually cited on on page 21 you know or you even uh, deep work by Cale Newport in my opinion those guys are very smart and you get that feeling when you read it <laughs> you're like I don't know what you just said but I know it's probably right <laughs> whereas hyperfocus not that the the material is dumbed down in any way but it just feels like you don't need a degree from productivity university in order to benefit from hyperfocus <laughs> in my opinion which makes it a lot more applicable to just about anybody in our audience well well and that's the thing you know it, it's not just productivity nerds that struggle with this stuff it's pretty much everybody in the entire world uh but you know on that point the the fascinating thing about the the papers that I was reading and you know some of them were pretty tedious but when you're so motivated by an idea to to get to the bottom of something it really kind of uh, makes it more pleasurable and novel. And, and that that was one of the things, like, you, you need to kind of wade through a lot of BS and a lot of industry nomenclature in these papers and a lot of uh, people trying to sound smart because that's kind of the culture of uh, oh, academics are going to be so pissed off at me. But that's kind of the culture of economics. My, my, my fiance is doing a PhD in economics, so can, come at me, haters. But you know, I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel like uh, this stuff needs to be shared with a broader audience. And not only that, but even if we can understand uh, what, what is being said in a research paper, that doesn't mean we want to read one when we're picking yeah. up a book. We want to read something that is effortless, that, that you know, kind of... I have this philosophy where there's two kinds of books. The first kind of books are the books where you turn the pages. And then the second kind of books are the books where the pages turn themselves. And I've always tried, you know, different people will probably tell you something different, but I've tried to to write books that fall into that latter category where, you know, things kind of flow along and, and make sense and build in a, in a nice way. Well, I think you've definitely accomplished that with hyperfocus. And one of the things that really helps with that, in my opinion, is these awesome visuals that you have. And you've got ones for the attentional space. You've got ones for the uh, the different types of, of tasks, which is actually where uh, I want to start here. 
because this kind of sets the stage for the whole book, in my opinion, and really makes just about anybody who would read this, I think, recognize that there are going to be places for them to uh, apply this whole idea of hyper-focus. So do you want to quickly explain to us the uh, the four types of tasks? Yeah, yeah. It's one of these classic two-by-two grids that I, I think a lot of people put out there. But uh, essentially, it's a way of thinking about the tasks and categorizing the tasks in your work uh, based on two different criteria. So you can imagine a, a two by two grid, unless you're driving, in which case you should probably focus on the road. But on the left it, is whether a task is productive or unproductive. And we can also separate things out based on whether they're unattractive or attractive. And so productive tasks that are unattractive are the things that we necessarily have to do. Uh, the attractive things that are productive, that's that's our most purposeful work. That's what drives us. Uh, that's why we do what we do so often of the time. But then there are the unproductive tasks that get in the way of doing this productive work. So the unproductive, unattractive things that are on our plate, that's kind of the unnecessary work. We usually don't spend too much time in that quadrant unless we're putting off something that that uh, we ought to be doing. Uh, but then the, the problem area of this grid are the unproductive, attractive things, um, the distracting work that feels... Uh, often important in the moment, but and feels more urgent. Uh, but and we so often pay attention to this over uh, what is actually more productive. But this is, I, I think, the problem area. So you know, the the more time we spend on the first two uh, areas that I mentioned, the the purposeful and the necessary work that we do, and the less time we spend on this distracting work and the unnecessary work, the more we move our work forward. And and so it's a helpful uh, little way of, and I, I recommend people divide their tasks up into a grid like this, you know, just divide a piece of paper and across on the left to put the productive and unproductive uh, tasks on the top, put the unattractive and attractive tasks and fill, fill the grid out because it's a great way of seeing from a higher level perspective what you truly want to be doing more of and what you truly ought to be taming. Yeah. One of the things that we have people do here at Asian Efficiency, we're big fans of the Eisenhower matrix. And that's kind of what this looks like. And we even have people put the tasks that they have to do into those four different categories. But in my opinion, the grid that you have, I think fits more cleanly for that exercise. Sometimes it can be hard to determine whether this is something that is important or unimportant, whereas you know right away whether I want to do this or I don't want to do this. Even just mentioning a task, like uh, updating your budget in Excel, we, we have this visceral feeling as as it relates to that. And we can be you know automatons and try to categorize our, our work perfectly, but it, it's um, I think it's helpful to categorize what we naturally feel compelled to do and separate those things out from what we... Uh, need to be doing, but don't want to be doing. And the reason this is helpful, it's not just some like grid I came up with so I can boost my speaking and my consulting fees. <laughs> it, it's, it really is a helpful way of dividing the things up that we do as it relates to our attention. Because our attention is drawn to what's attractive, because we're wired to, to be drawn to what's attractive. In fact, anything that is uh, pleasurable or threatening or novel. Uh, these are characteristics that something can have that make us more likely to pay attention to it. 
And so th- this aided us pretty well, in fact, in our evolutionary history, because instead of hyper-focusing on building a fire for uh, the village that we were living in, we noticed the novel threat encroaching in our territory, the saber-toothed tiger uh, sneaking over from the side of us building the fire, and then we d- dealt with the threat, and then we survived to live another day and build another fire. And the same is true for the novel, uh, pleasurable things in our environment. When we were going on a walk, for example, we noticed the berries in the tree that were a different color that had a nice contrast from the rest of the tree. Uh, we noticed potential mates. We noticed uh, the pleasurable things in our environment. And this aided our chances at survival and allowed us to survive to today. But, of course, now the the nearest tigers are at the zoo, and food is very plentiful, um, and uh, I know that far too well because uh, the Uber Eats, many of the Uber Eats drivers know my name in this small <laughs> city that I live in. It's a sad state of affairs, but but that's uh, it is what it is. And so, and so it, you know, th- this is the situation that we find ourselves in, where what we see as a distraction is really just an object of attention that, in the moment, is more attractive than what we truly ought and want to be doing. Um, that's, that's why we pay attention to it. And so I think we have to divide out what's actually attractive uh, from what isn't attractive and separate out what's productive from what's unproductive, because we all kind of know what's productive and unproductive. But this second variable where we separate out what we want to do from what we need to do but don't want to do, uh, I think that's where the power lies in this way of dividing things up. I completely agree. In fact, one of the things that we have trouble with when we work with people and try to get them to classify their tasks according to the Eisenhower matrix is getting them to recognize that the things that are coming at them that are urgent, that they're really not as important as they think they are. And on page 16, you you nailed it. You mentioned the most urgent and stimulating things in your environment are rarely the most significant. And I think that you're, you're good that you described there where you've got productive, unproductive, unattractive, and attractive. That really makes that crystal clear. And that's really the, the point. That's the whole idea behind hyperfocus because there are going to be things which are going to be attractive or they're going to grab your attention and initially you're going to think, well, I should do this right now. But what and correct me if I'm wrong, but the message I got from the book was hyperfocus is saying, no, uh, I recognize that those things are going to flash in front of my face, but there may be distractions. Maybe they're not the most significant things that I should be working on right now. And so hyperfocus is the thing that is going to let me make the best use of my attentional space, which is something we mentioned earlier. And this is another one that you've got a very cool visual for. Uh, do you want to just explain real quickly, though, what attentional space is? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we talk about how inaccessible the research is. And this is one of those ideas where our attentional space is basically just what we hold in our mind at any given moment. It's our mental scratch pad that we use to have conversations, we use to solve problems. If you do a bit of mental arithmetic, if in your mind right now you add up 31 and 24, you use this working memory capacity that you have, this attentional space, in order to compute that problem. So this is just a way of framing this idea of our working memory capacity. And this idea, more than that, of us being able to hold only a few uh, things in our mind at one moment. We're, we're able to hold, we, we used to think that we can hold around seven unique chunks of information, but 
the the latest research that I've seen on this idea, there's a lot of people that measure how many things we can hold in our mind at one moment. Uh, but the latest research shows that we can hold around three or four unique chunks of information in our mind in the moment. And so we've structured the world around this. Um, you know, I, I love the number three because there are so many uh, combinations of that. We have sayings like uh, good things come in threes and celebrities die in threes and the third time is the charm and blood, sweat and tears and the good, the bad, the ugly. And we grow up immersed in stories that involve threes like uh, the three little bears, the three blind mice, the three little pigs, the three musketeers. We divide th things into fours. You know, the quadrant that I just, we, we were just talking about. Um, you know, we, we kind of work within that mental capacity. So look at a phone number. A phone number, we, we can fit about three or four things in our mind at one time. There's a reason why we don't like write out uh, like uh, say say like uh, my phone number is three billion seven hundred thirty five million eight hundred forty four thousand one hundred sixty seven. We say my <laughs> phone number is you know my area code is six one three. Then blah 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 blah. We divide that into th chunks of three or four. The world is structured around this limited working memory capacity. Um, and, and this is, you know, this is all I refer to in, in referring to our attentional space. This is how much we can hold in our mind at one time. And the key takeaway to this idea, um, you know, our attention is limited in two ways. First of all, we can only pay attention to so much in the moment. But second of all, once we pay attention to something and encode it into this attentional space, um, we can only process so much in the moment. And, and so it becomes then uh, so essential that we deliberately manage our attention because it's so limited. We can't uh, carry on two conversations at once, even though we might try. Uh, we might, uh, we, we can't write an email while we listen to a podcast, or at least do those well, um, because we don't have enough attention to give to both tasks. Uh, we have at most, uh, you know, the capacity to do a few habits, which don't take up much attention once we once we get going with them, or you know, focusing on one important thing at a time while maybe doing something else that's habitual, like uh, listening to a podcast while we fold our laundry. Um, and so, you know, this by managing our attentional space, we manage our attention. We manage our life uh, because the state of our attention is what determines the state of our life. If there's one thing that uh, is true from the research, it's that. If we're distracted in every moment, those moment-by-moment -moment, uh, experiences accumulate to create a distracted life. If we bring uh, meaningful things into this attentional space, good, good conversations, you know, good cups of coffee, uh, good experiences with our family, with our kids, then we live a, a meaningful life because these moment-by-moment -moment experiences accumulate to make a life. And so this is, I, I think, the, the power of deliberately managing this space, it's limited, and so we need to respect our attention before we before we wreck our attention. I couldn't escape that <laughs> that terrible saying, but but you know, it, it's so critical that we manage this space because we only have so much attention, and uh, it, it means so much. Yeah, you use the analogy in the book of the attentional space being the RAM in your brain's computer, and I really like that. Uh, I also like the definition of mindfulness that you used, which is noticing what your mind is full of, which makes so much sense when you think about it through the lens of my mind can only hold so much, so I'm going to be selective about the stuff that I pay attention to. It really puts FOMO in the right light where it's like 
I can't possibly keep up with all this stuff. So instead of just drinking from the fire hose, I'm going to be selective about the things that I'm going to allow into my attentional space. And I want to recap real quickly because I think this is a really powerful idea. And you went through this. Uh, You mentioned the three combinations that work with the attentional space that you have available. So number one, you can do a few small habitual tasks. Number two, you can do a task that requires most of your focus and a habitual task. Or number three, you can focus on one complex task. This, when I read this, rocked my world because in the productivity space, you hear all the time, you can't multitask. And I agree with that in principle, but sometimes it works. (laughs) And you gave me the framework for understanding why. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's kind of, I think, where people, and I would include myself in this group of people, uh, are a bit misguided because who's to say that we can't uh, walk, walk while we chew bubble gum while we avoid the cracks in the sidewalk, while we pay attention to a podcast that we're listening to. Uh, Who's to say that we can't go for a run on the treadmill while we listen to this show? Uh, Who's to say that we can't, uh, you know, carry on a phone conversation while we take a walk through nature? This idea that our attention is limited, it's very limited, but especially with habits, we can multitask with habits because the research on habits shows that once we initiate doing a habit, our mind runs through the rest of this habit sequence, mostly on autopilot mode, so we don't have to think about it. You know, we, uh, we're we driving home and we don't really think about that. Instead, what, what fills our attentional space is the talk radio show that we're listening to or the podcast or the audio uh, book that we're listening to. And, and so who's to say that we can't do it? But I think the key is that it has to be with habits because once you try focusing and bringing your full attention to one complex thing at one time, um, it's uh, things get a bit messy. Exactly. And that's where the idea of hyper-focus comes in. In the, in the book, the definition you give is expanding one task project or other object of attention so that it fills your attentional space completely. And there's a couple different stages for this hyper-focus. You want to talk us through these? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so yeah, the idea is similar to uh, to to one like flow. Uh, you know, you mentioned me high chick sent me high. Um, his, you know, he he's done some groundbreaking research. His book Flow is probably his best known idea. Where you know this state where we become so totally immersed in what we're doing. And I, I see hyperfocus as kind of the process that leads to a state like flow. Or like uh, our friend Cal Newport uh, puts it, deep work. Um, and, and there's a few steps. And, the, you know, I, I think a lot of people have these uh, these three, these four, these five-step systems. Um, but I think it's worth starting if we're defining the steps by which uh, we, should more f- we should focus more deeply on our work. We should start by the natural rhythms that our attention has in the first place. You know, usually we're, almost always, we're focused on something, then our attention gets distracted either by something internal or external. Uh, the, the research shows we experience about an equal number of each. And then we bring it back. So we focus, our attention gets distracted, we notice that it's wandered, then we bring it back. And so we can kind of model a few steps by which we can focus more deeply on what we want to do based on this natural framework, based on nature. You know, what, what, a, what a fascinating idea, you know. Uh, so uh, I define a few steps in the book uh, that are built on top of this natural framework. So, you know, we focus on something to start. Maybe we can choose what to focus on. Uh, we can choose something uh, productive or meaningful 
at which we direct our attention. Then we get distracted. Well, maybe we can eliminate the external and internal distractions, eliminate as many of them as we possibly can. Then, you know, third, we can focus on that thing. And then when we notice that our attention has wandered, we uh, bring it back gently to what we originally intended to accomplish. Um, and I, I want to highlight that word gently really quickly because, you know, we talked a bit, a bit about this a little bit, but this idea that our mind is drawn to anything that's pleasurable or threatening or novel, embedded within that idea is something powerful. And that is that this distraction that we find ourselves in isn't our fault. It's just the way our mind is wired, but we need to get out in front of that impulse. And, and when we notice that it's wandered, bring it back gently, you know, realizing that this state is just human. This is the way that we're wired to work um, and, and pay attention to things. And so it's kind of this uphill uh, battle, and, and it's worth being kind to yourself as you bring your mind back. And the research shows that we're actually, we actually fare better when, we be, when we're kind to our mind because it makes the experience of uh, bringing our attention back less aversive, and it makes us more aware uh, and more mindful um, of, like you said, what our mind is full of and what's occupying our attention in the moment. And so those are the four steps, uh, I think, by which we should uh, focus on what's important. First, choose what to focus on, um, because that allows us to shut off autopilot mode, uh, then eliminate as many external and internal distractions and interruptions, then focus, then bring our attention back gently. Yeah, I like the the emphasis that you placed on bringing your attention back gently. Uh, not too long ago, I think it was episode 208, uh, Brooks and I recorded on, on uh, Beginner's Guide to Mindfulness Meditation. I'm definitely not an expert, but for a long time, I avoided mindfulness meditation because I was like, I suck at this. My mind wanders all the time. And it took me a long time to get over the fact that, no, that's part of the process. And really the benefit comes from gently bringing your attention back, recognizing that it's wandered. And every time you do that, you're training your brain, uh, which is a, a very important piece of, of hyper-focus too. I think if you were to sit down and just try to hyper-focus for an extended period of time, you're going to find that maybe you're not very good at it yet. You got to build up those muscles before you can really, really do it. But that simple four-step process that you outlined, I think that's great. It gives people something to start with. And I also want to call out, you mentioned the first one about having a meaningful object of attention, that uh, attention without intention, as you say in the book, is, is wasted energy. And really, that's the goal for me personally. The book challenged me to recognize that my attention is going to be limited. And so I want to apply intentionality with everything that I'm going to give my attention to. I'm not going to let anything that I don't choose to let into my world. And again, this is the, the ideal. So this is <laughs> probably never going to perfectly happen according to plan. But you know, I don't want to let anything in that shouldn't be there. I want to be the the gatekeeper and I want to only let in the stuff that is going to be moving me towards my goals. Is that kind of a, a fair synopsis of the the goal of this? Yeah, totally. And and to give something else to I love making, you know, chats like this as tactical as possible because, you know, then it, it, even if somebody doesn't buy the book, it, it still helps them out. But so, something uh, tactical that folks can do right away is to set an hourly chime on your phone, on your watch, on an, on a clock, whatever it might be, that when it goes off, ask yourself, am I working with intention in this moment? Um, and when you start it, if you're anything like me, at the beginning, you'll probably find 
that the answer is usually no, I'm not working with intention right now. I'm distracted or I, or I dealt with this uh, thing that was latest and loudest. I, I was using my email inbox as a to-do list and I, I focused on the urgent thing that came up, which upon a bit of reflection maybe isn't as important as, as what I was doing before that. Um, and so th- this, I think, is another powerful way that somebody can, can work with greater intention throughout the day and kind of become more aware of what's occupying their attention. You know, when when the chime goes off, ask yourself, was I working with intention behind what I was doing or was I distracted? You know, what was I trying to focus on too many things at one time that weren't habits? Uh, was I trying to cram too many things into this attentional space that I have? Um, and, and, or was I, was I focused deeply on something that I chose to focus on? In which case, keep going. But it's a great way of, uh, of checking up on your, uh, on your attention and practicing this idea of meta-awareness and mindfulness. Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting The Productivity Show. When it comes to running your business, the right people make all the difference. That's why it's so important to find the right person for the job you're trying to fill. But where do you find that one person who's a perfect fit for your company? You could try traditional methods like posting on job boards, but how can you really be sure the right person sees your job? Fortunately, there's a better option. Find the person who will fit your business and help it grow with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every single day to grow professionally and discover new job opportunities. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn, so there's no better way to get your job listing in front of the right person than with a LinkedIn jobs listing. LinkedIn jobs matches potential candidates to the real requirements of your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, interests, even how open they are to new opportunities. This makes sure that your job gets seen by more of the right people, increasing the likelihood of a good hire, even if your ideal candidate isn't actively looking for another job right now. In fact, most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. So if you're looking for a way to reach people like this who can take your organization to the next level, the only way to reach them is on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn, and businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. If you're looking to fill an open position, but can't afford to waste time and money hiring the wrong person, hurry to linkedin.com TPS and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com TPS to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com TPS. Terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to LinkedIn for supporting the productivity show. Speaking of those distractions, you've got a whole chapter on taming these distractions, including another great visual. <laughs> the you've got another grid here. You want to talk us through the the different types of of distractions? Yeah, for sure. The, you know, this is another one of those ideas that's worth categorizing in a couple different ways. You know, we know if something's a distraction or not, uh, but after we've determined that it is a distraction or an interruption, I think it's worth dividing those up uh, based on two different criteria. First of all, whether something is within or outside of our control. And so, in other words, whether we can tame it in advance or not, or and whether it's annoying or whether it's it's fun, it's a it's a welcome reprieve from the work that we 
truly need to be doing. Uh, and so, you know, knowing fun ones that, uh, knowing ones that we can't control, they might include, uh, you know, office visitors or loud colleagues. Uh, fun ones that we can't control might include surprise team lunches where it totally disrupts our work from, for the day. Um, we can't control these from arising in the first place. And because we can't, the only thing that we can basically do with these things is to control how we relate to them after it is that they do arise and interrupt our work by keeping uh, the original intention for what we uh, had wanted to accomplish in mind. But luckily, the ones that we can control, um, that, that those far outnumber the ones that we can't. Um, that, that includes email that we get, that includes a lot of meetings that re- we get requested to be on, that includes our smartphone, that includes uh, the internet, that includes the environment around us, that includes uh, music and notifications and uh, news websites and social media. All of these things um, will be a more threatening or pleasurable or novel thing in the moment than what we truly want to be doing. And so that, uh, that way, we, we need to get out ahead of them. Yeah, you mentioned in this chapter that there's, there's two places that distractions originate, ourselves and others. And you mentioned that we get back to work six minutes sooner when we are interrupted by others compared to ourselves, which I thought was really interesting and just showed the, that we really are our own worst enemies. <laughs> we are, yeah. The, you know, it's, And it's just the way our brain is wired, where we pay attention to anything that's, that's novel. But we seek out this, uh, th- these types of things. And if you don't believe... Uh, what, what I'm saying, you know, <laughs> maybe like look at what happens often uh, right when you wake up. If your phone is your alarm clock and you don't have to spring out of bed because you're already late for something, uh, maybe you lay down in bed and check your email, then bounce over to social media and then bounce over to uh, Instagram and then uh, check in the news. And then he's got some updates on, on another. Then before you know it, 25, 26 minutes have gone by uh, bouncing around in this this autopilot cycle. And so it, it just shows that that we really do. This isn't my quote. I forget who said it, but uh, somebody said, if the first thing we did in the morning was uh, crave a drink, uh, we'd be an alcoholic. So what does it say about the state of our attention that the first thing we do after we wake up is uh, crave our phone and have to spend half an hour <laughs> on that thing? So it's, uh, it really is worth getting out ahead of these things. Wow. I like that quote. <laughs> really uh, puts a it puts a good perspective on the on the the whole uh, whole addiction thing, and uh, we we definitely advocate for that too. You know, you need to you need to take a break from your technology, and if your phone is the first thing that you you grab when you wake up in the morning, then go ahead and put it in the the other room. Yeah, it, it's a, it, and it's about lowering uh, your default level of stimulation too. You know, we we so often go from moment to moment to moment uh, to novel thing to novel thing to novel thing without really lowering how stimulated we are uh, because we always crave that next hit. Um, we even have a you know a novelty bias embedded within our brain where each time we focus on something that's new and novel, our brain rewards us with a hit of dopamine um, that that essentially rewards our our behavior of bouncing around between a bunch of uh, shiny objects of attention. And so it's, you know, it's addictive on that level. And so who can blame us for doing this? But at the same time, it's worth 
getting accustomed to a lower level of stimulation over time. If, if you go from being distracted 100% of the time uh, to tending to zero distractions throughout the day, you might be encouraged, you know, when you see how productive you are, but you might also be bored a lot of the time and restless and have to work <laughs> your way through those types of feelings because, you know, boredom is sort of this feeling that we experience as we adjust from a, a high state of stimulation into a lower state of stimulation. It's, it's that rapid change of stimulation where we, we experience these feelings. So, you know, kind of gradually lowering that over time by, by taming these things, uh, starting with the most problem ones. Um, the, the ones on the computer that, that we're working on are huge so often of the time. Uh, one study, probably the most illuminating study that I encountered over the course of, of the research was done by Gloria Mark at, at the University of uh, Stanford University, I believe, where she found that when we do work in front of a computer, we only focus on one thing before getting distracted and focusing on something else, whether it's internal or external. We only focus on one thing for 40 seconds before we switch to doing something else. And often we'll get back on track immediately after, but when we're interrupted completely, that's when we lose those 25 minutes of productivity. We fare a bit better if it's an external distraction versus whether it's an internal one, but still it's a, it's a lot of productivity to miss out on. And so this is the state that we work in. So any uh, way that we can chip away at how stimulated we are, how much dopamine is is riding and coursing through our our mind because of the this novel uh, these novel uh, distractions that we focus on. Um, it's worth doing over time, uh, starting with the most problem ones and then working your way uh, to to an even even lower level of stimulation where you can think more deeply and uh, work more deeply. And I have to interject here that you really do practice what you preach because before we started recording, I asked you what podcast you were listening to and you had to go to the other room to get your phone. <laughs> I was just pretending to. There's no way you can... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but now my phone is here and uh, it just speaks to, to the idea that, that you know the cues in our environment can pull us into a world of distraction. I'm looking at my phone. It's uh, oddly enough, there's a meditation cushion to the left of my desk here and it's sitting on the meditation cushion because... I didn't want it in front of me, but it's it's kind of calling my name. You know, maybe I have uh, notifications that I could tend to. Maybe I have text messages. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, quite remarkable. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about distractions. Uh, let's talk about how you can increase the size of your attentional space. And this is the next chapter on making hyperfocus a habit which I really like because it's not a one-time thing and you're either focused or you're not. It's something that you can build up over time if you establish this habit. You've got four strategies for battling initial resistance. This chapter in particular, I really, really liked. Uh, you talked about how there's a lot of things that you can do that, uh, and there's a lot of benefits from increasing your attentional space, but you had one thing in particular, which we kind of talked about already, meditation, uh, and you had shared a great statistic in here, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot because this isn't the outline, but uh, uh, hopefully you can speak to this, about the benefits of meditation, since this is so fresh for me, and what this does with your attentional space. This is like uh, really forcing me to to think if, like, it, did, did I have a ghostwriter for the book, or do I actually know? <laughs> no, no, I wrote the book. <laughs> um, in, you know, we, we talk about RAM a little bit. And meditation is this fascinating way. There's a lot of brain training apps out there. I, I don't know if, if do any sponsor this show? 
out of curiosity. Uh, they haven't yet. No. Okay, that's good because most of them are their their claims don't uh, hold up in research, um, even when studies measure the very th- things that the brain training apps are trying to increase. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, the, they, they have lofty promises, but they don't really hold up. But what does hold up, uh, surprisingly, is, like you said, meditation. And in fact, it, it has a way of increasing the amount of uh, attention we have uh, to give to our world in the moment. In fact, it, it increases the size of our attentional space by about 30%. And so essentially, if you meditate, you get an extra uh, RAM module in your mind because you have 30% more attention to give to the world around you. Um, there, there was one other study. I think I'm going to have these numbers Maybe wrong, but I think they're right. I'm, I'm confident they're right, which probably means they're wrong. Um, it, one <laughs> study, they, they asked people who are studying for the GRE um, to meditate consistently. And they found that those who meditated scored 16% better on the test um, because meditation, it, it helps us filter unwanted information. It helps us solidify what we know. It helps us focus more deeply when we're studying and, and all these different variables. And, and so it's this wonderful activity. And not only, by the way, does it increase the size of, of our working memory, of our attentional space, which means we can process things more deeply. We can take on more complex work. We're not tempted as much toward distraction because we have a greater amount of mental resources to de- to dedicate to any problems that might potentially come up or be in front of us. But there's a certain level of residue that we experience in our attentional space when we switch from doing one thing to another. And so we're having this conversation r- right now. But if, if we were to finish up this podcast recording, and then I had a conversation with, uh, with my fiance, uh, chances are, some fragments of our conversation would remain within this attentional space as I switched to doing something else. Or if I was writing something, I'd be recalling this conversation a little bit. And it's because we can't cleanly switch from doing one thing to doing another. There's, there, there's this certain residue um, that, that has to fade from our attentional space when we switch to doing something. And meditation uh, quite literally allows us to become a better custodian of this limited attentional space that we have. And it leads us to experience less residue when we're switching from one thing to another. So not only does it increase the amount of working memory that we have, it increases the size of our attentional space. If I'm remembering that study right, they they had a couple of other uh, groups in the randomized control study, um, one of whom uh, practiced yoga for several weeks, and they didn't notice a market improvement in those people or the people who did nothing, but they did notice it with the meditation participants. Not only does it increase the size of your attentional space, it allows you to switch between things more seamlessly and experience less residue as you do. Uh, and so it's this amazing practice. Just think, 30%, it's not like one of these uh, statistics where, oh, you can double your attention, you can triple and quadruple your product. It's, you know, 30% might sound like a small number when a lot of people are making lofty claims when it comes to, to our attention and our productivity. But at the same time, because our attention is so limited in the moment, frankly, anything we can do to increase the quality of our attention that we give to our work and to our life, you notice those effects 
almost immediately. If you can take on 30% more than a coworker, it's not as if you get 30% more done. These effects compound over time, uh, like compounding interest, and, and they add up to uh, not only make you more productive, but also makes you more creative and, and uh, allows you to see more meaning in what you're doing and work with greater intention as well at the same time. Yeah, I was I was blown away by that thirty percent statistic that you shared in in the book. Uh, just a simple habit, which I mean, I'm probably not nearly as far on my mindfulness meditation journey as as you are. Sounds like you have a little bit more of an established habit, but just ten minutes at the beginning of my day uh, that can have a significant increase in the amount of attentional space that I have. Which, like you like you mentioned, that has a significant increase in the amount of productivity that I have and that compounds over time so I can achieve my goals theoretically a lot faster as long as I do what I need to do. Now, one of the other things... So so you get back on track more quickly too. Uh, we, we want our mind wanders against our will around 47% of the day, but we only notice that it has wandered around five times each hour. And this is why, <laughs> you know, looking at what's in your attention, what your mind is full of is so powerful because we can get back on track when, when it's veered to something else. But meditation does this too. We, we can up that number from checking up on what's our, on our attention, what's on our mind from five times to 10 to 15. And the more we do that, the quicker we can realign to, to focus on what's actually important too. Mm, I like that. Now you had, you had touched on, um, uh, in, in that last section, something on the, the topic of, of creativity. And one of the things that I like about this book is that the first half of it, you spend describing this whole idea of hyperfocus, which kind of, if you just read that part of the book, leaves you, in, in my opinion anyways, kind of the same place that deep work does. I know a lot of people who have read deep work, they love deep, the idea of deep work, but they have so much trouble implementing deep work because it's just like, oh, this is an ideal state that I can't possibly maintain forever. So I just am never going to try. <laughs> but you kind of balance this. You've got a yin and a yang here. So uh, for hyper-focus being the, the focused attention on, I'm going to do this one thing really well, you also introduce another topic, which helps you recover and unlocks, in, in your words, your brain's hidden creative mode. Yeah. And, and this is one thing that surprised me from the research process is I thought like, oh, okay, I'm going to research focus and get to the bottom of how we can be focused and why we're distracted. And along the way, I stumbled on that idea, you know, that that idea that our mind wanders for 47% of the day, we're only focused on what's in front of us around half of the time. And that led me to a lot of fascinating research on this mind wandering mode. And usually we don't feel that good about our mind wandering because it's often wandering against our will when we truly want to be focusing on something. But the research around this topic is absolutely fascinating. It blew my mind. And once I started exploring this and connecting a bunch of different studies on the murder map in my office, that's such a terrible term, the murder map. Uh, <laughs> yep. it, it was this... Uh, it was this kind of like eureka insight that I had. And I thought, why isn't anybody talking about this? Because if you look at where our mind goes to uh, when it's wandering, it wanders to some fascinating places. When, when I realized this, you know, we talked about boredom a little bit. I, I conducted an experiment to purposefully make myself bored for an hour a day for a month. And so for, for one day, I read the uh, iTunes terms and conditions. Uh, another day, 
I waited on hold with Air Canada's baggage claims department. Uh, another day, I watched <laughs> one cloud in the sky for an hour, uh, all while while looking at where my mind was wandering to. And, you know, I came to the conclusion that boredom, you know, there there's uh, some, some books, I think, on boredom and the power of it, but uh, it's not really a feeling that's worth experiencing. Um, it's kind of a, a, a byproduct of this mind-wandering mode when we enter, enter into it, whether uh, with or without intention. You know, a bit of boredom is, is helpful, but too much, an hour a day for a month is it feels like hell. But, but the, the fascinating places our mind wanders to when it's wandering. It, it wanders to the past a little bit, around 12% of the time. It's recalling information. It's recalling experiences. But then it wanders to the present. So what we're doing then and there, around 28% of the time. Uh, but it wanders to the future, 48% of the time. And so this is time when we spend thinking about our goals. It's time we spend uh, considering the intentions that we want to set over the course of the rest of the day. It's, you know, it's not when we're focused on something that we choose the path that we want to take. It's between what we focus on that we choose the path that we want to take. If you're working at an office, for an example, when you're so focused on answering email, you might not be thinking about what you want to do next. But it's when you walk to the bathroom without your phone or to the meeting room without your phone or without anything in your mind that your mind wanders a bit to think about the future and plan for the future. And when it's thinking about the future, it's usually focused on the immediate future. Um, you know, we, we focus on the immediate future 44% of the time, and I believe uh, 40% of the time thinking about tomorrow. And so we wander to the past, to the present, and to the future. And so what this means is that when our mind is wandering, A, we plan quite a bit. We think about our goals 14 times as much when our mind is wandering versus when we're focused on something. But more than this, when it bounces between the past to the present to the future, this is when our best ideas strike us. We remember a book we were reading or a podcast interview that we were listening to yesterday and connect that to what we're doing that day and to how we want to have a difficult conversation later on in that day. Um, we connect the ideas that we accumulated, um, you know, back in university, this offhanded remark that a professor made, and we connect that to uh, to a book that we're reading and come up with an idea that maybe not many people have pieced together before that would make for a good conversation or a good way to live our lives differently. This mode is so powerful, and it's powerful because it lets us unearth these ideas and become more creative and work with intention while we rest our attention. Uh, because when we don't try to control our attention or regulate it in one way or another, that is when we recharge. It's when we regulate our, our attention one way or another that we expend mental energy. So it, it's a wonderful way of doing all three of these things at one time. It lets us recharge, it lets us ideate, and it lets us plan. And I, I don't think we're getting enough of this mode as it is. It, it, one, one of my favorite other topics of, of study is traffic flow. You know, my, outside my office here, maybe you can hear a few of the larger trucks going by, but there's a, there's a, uh, a busier road. And if you look at how traffic flows down the highway, what allows traffic to continue moving forward isn't how fast individual cars are moving, but rather it's how much space exists between the cars that allows the traffic to continue to flow. And I make the argument that our work is much the same way. 
where the more space we have between what we do, the more we can work on what's important, the more we can up the quality of our attention because we focus for longer on the right things and the better ideas that we come up with, which lets us work smarter in the first place. Yeah, I love this this whole idea. And I'm not sure if you named this this mode, um, but I'm going to just call it out here because I, I like this term scatter focus. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned in this chapter that boredom, which you addressed earlier, is really unwanted scatter focus. So that can cause you to look at distractions and there's got a negative side effect is that it makes you anxious, but scatter focus can actually be very productive. And there's three different styles of this. There's the capture mode, the problem crunching, problem crunching mode, and the habitual mode. Uh, and do you want to just quickly talk about the, the use cases for those? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, there are multiple ways that we can scatter our, enter into scatter focus. Scatter focus is the word that I use. I, I couldn't find one that people already use. It's the word that I use for mind wandering, but deliberate mind wandering. So in other words, when we choose to scatter our attention in one way, I call that scatter focus because it's just a nice term for it. Uh, but there's a few ways that we can do this. Um, capture mode, like you said, this is great for capturing what's on our mind. And so if you lay down or sit somewhere with maybe a cup of coffee and a notepad and just kind of capture the to-dos that come up, uh, this this works really well in conjunction with GTD. Um, I'm a big nerd about GTD as, as well as, as our attention. Th- this works well for capturing to-dos and things you're waiting for and people you should follow up with and tasks that, that fell through uh, the cracks. Um, so that's that's one way, but that's that's likely to lead to boredom because if you look at the, the how stimulated you are in, in capture mode, it's probably a bit less than when you're working throughout the day. Uh, problem crunching mode is a great one if you're chewing over uh, a specific problem. So maybe you get a job offer and you you're weighing whether to accept it because the pay is a bit better, but you'd have to work a bit harder than what you're doing now, with, where you have more time for your family. Um, so it's great for chewing over a specific problem that you're facing, you know, going a walk through nature while you, while you kind of let your mind wander around, uh, around one problem that you're facing. And what you'll find is that your mind will think about the future. It'll think about the past. It'll think about ideas. It'll think about what you're doing then and there while you get to recharge and while you ideate, which, which makes it more likely that you'll arrive at a solution. But the third way of entering scatter focus is by doing something habitual. And so there, the research shows that when we do something habitual, um, whether it's taking a shower, whether it's uh, swimming laps, whether it's having our morning coffee, just kind of like letting our attention rest and enjoying the cup of coffee, habitual tasks lead to more creative insights because it lets us rest while we don't have to regulate our attention because we're doing something that we enjoy. Uh, but the habitual thing actually anchors us toward scattering our attention. And so, in other words, for the entire duration of a shower, if you're not listening to a, to a podcast during it, for example, um, that the while your brain runs through the habit sequences of taking that shower, your attention scatters. And because, here's the thing, it, when you're doing something habitual, that habit 
much like multitasking um, on something, because you're just doing one habit, that doesn't consume your full attentional space. And so because you have some attentional space to spare, that gets to scatter and think about the future and the present and the past and come up with these ideas. And so we lead uh, ourselves to the greatest number of creative insights uh, while doing something fun, while we're able to rest, while we scatter our attention for longer because we run through the habit sequence, all while we periodically check up on what's on our mind. Um, and the key with habitual mode is regardless of what you're doing, pick a habit that, that you find fun because it's more restful that way. But regardless of what you're, make sure you have a notepad nearby uh, because some ideas are bound to rise to the surface of your attentional space that, that will change the way you, you work. I like that. In fact, the next chapter, which is recharging your attention, you talk about the refreshing break characteristics. It's exactly what you just described. Low low effort and habitual, something you actually want to do, something that isn't a chore. And I know I've done this recently with, uh, I've created a, a running habit and I I installed uh, drafts on my, my phone and I put it on my, my watch as well because I found that it was amazing how many good ideas I got when I was out for a run. <laughs> so I needed a way to just capture them real quickly. And uh, that allows me to do this. So that's my digital notepad, but I, I totally agree. Uh, I also think it's worth calling out here that you mentioned in the book that the more often you recharge via scatter focus, the more mental energy you have. So it's not just like you're doing this to give yourself a rest. It's almost like when you are switching into this mode there's a if there were two gauges, you know, and and hyper focus is depleting. When you go into scatter focus, that one actually fills back up. Is that a a fair uh, description? Yeah, the the two mental modes are are fascinating um, because on a neurological level, they're even anti-correlated with one another. So when the uh, the brain network that supports hyper focus or just focus in general, you know, even if we're not giving deliberate attention to something, when that's activated, um, that's the task positive network. The the network that supports scatter focus, uh, which is called the default mode network, is activated significantly less and vice versa. And so we can't both focus and reflect on something at the same time. We can, when we're focusing on something, we can't make these big logical leaps in our thinking. We have to kind of uh, go to, to the next kind of logical conclusion. And so because, uh, because our, our hyper-focus muscle, the, this muscle by which we give attention to things over the course of the day, is so easily depleted, especially the more we have to regulate control over our attention, um, and scatter focus lets us recharge, they're, they're kind of opposite modes in a lot of curious ways, but they work together at the same time in a lot of ways too. So yeah, I think seeing them as sort of two gauges um, where, or maybe one gauge, where when your hyper-focus gauge kind of diminishes towards empty uh, and you find yourself being distracted more and tending to uh, less significant things and that you have less attention to give to things in the moment, that's a good time to step back and recharge so that you can begin to move the gauge to the right and make that energy full again, which pays off in the long term, especially, um, you know, given scatter focuses, it allows you to be so much more creative and productive. And there's where mindfulness comes in again, recognizing when you're you're getting you're getting to to one side of that gauge or the other. I would go so far as to say it's impossible to manage your attention better and more deliberately without also becoming more mindful. Um, and, and you know, it seems like such a natural conclusion to to those who study mindfulness, but 
so often the the environment that we work in and and the distractions that surround us they pull us into working on autopilot mode where we work on like you said what's latest and loudest instead of becoming more thoughtful about what we we spend our time and attention on so yeah i think yeah just kind of a tangent but i think that's so essential yeah and really that's the the theme of the the last couple chapters in this book where you're talking about managing both hyperfocus and scatter focus. Uh, there's one section in particular that I want to make sure that we touch on though, which is this whole idea of collecting and connecting dots. And this is something that's really powerful to me. Uh, this is really the, the thing that allowed me in my, my own mind anyways, gave me a license to quote unquote, be creative. I thought for a long time I was not creative until I read Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon where Austin described that really all I was doing was collecting dots and then connecting them in ways that hadn't been connected before. So when I I wrote a song and I recognized that my melody line had the same, you know, was the same as some other popular song that I heard, like that wasn't just me not being able to be be, uh, creative. That was the natural and logical conclusion or the output of the dots that I had collected. And so the, the revelation that I got at that point was, well, I need to collect more dots and I have to collect more good dots. And you have a really cool idea here on, um, and again, a great visual on how not all dots are created equal. (laughs) If you pick up a finished copy of the book at the very beginning, there's like the illustrations credit and uh, I'm reading it now. Um, where is it? Illustrations, copyright, Chris Bailey. I, I did them all myself. <laughs> and, and so, I, I, you know, a designer at, at Penguin Random House cleaned them up a bit because, you know, mine were pretty crappy to begin with. But yeah, it's another kind of, <laughs> you know, convenient way of looking at the information that we consume where there, there are different not all information, just like not all tasks in our work are are built equally. Not all information that we consume is made equally. Um, you know, some are are more use. Some pieces of information are more useful than others. Uh, some provide us with more lasting value. And so you can kind of picture uh, an illustration with kind of usefulness of information on the left, and the entertainment value of that information on the bottom. And usually, the more useful something is, the less entertaining something is. And so on the very left in in my graph uh, would be journal articles. You know, they're very useful. They allow me to uh, to progress my work forward and so I can share these ideas with other people. But in terms of the entertainment value, they're very, very low. And so you can kind of work your way to the right of this graph. After useful information, there's information that's kind of balanced between the two. So that's useful and entertaining. And then you have the lower third of the graph, uh, information that's either entertaining. So, you know, it provides you with a good amount of entertainment, but it might not be that useful. Uh, And finally, information that's trashy that we... uh, can veg out on, you know, watching Netflix or, or whatever it might be. And so it's worth considering what we consume over the course of the day and how that information uh, falls on this chart. You know, consuming a bit more useful information, especially when we have a bit of energy, uh, consuming a good amount of balanced information, uh, but also consuming entertainment and uh, entertaining things with intention. Um, or or when we're running really low on energy and we need to recharge and trying to consume a bit less trashy information. Because 
there's so many potential objects of attention that we could focus on in any moment. Like every single moment of our life is kind of like going to Netflix.com, where in any moment we could consume 10,000 things or focus on 10,000 things. And there quite literally is a limitless number of things that we can consume. And But this information has a critical impact on the information that we're able to connect in the future as well. So the information we collect, the dots we collect, uh, influences what we are able to connect. And you hit on this this idea, um, I believe Stephen Johnson talks about this idea in his books, where most of the ideas that come to us, uh, they exist in kind of the adjacent possible. And so we don't make large logical leaps in our thinking all that often. Usually we connect a few pieces of the information that we consume to create an idea that is adjacent to that information, but not so outside of that that constellation of information that we've already collected and connected, um, that it's a new idea entirely. And, and so this is all that genius is, I'd make the argument of, where Geniuses are people who simply have collected and connected enough information on a given topic that they become so much more uh, well-versed in that topic, better than almost anyone else on the planet. And, and so, you know, you look at, it's that classic 10,000-hour rule by Malcolm Gladwell, even though that's, you know, that it's kind of been disproven a bit that 10,000 is, is exactly the number of hours, but, you know, I, I like to think of it as approximately the, the number of hours of deliberate practice we need in order to um, build and amass enough uh, of a constellation of dots in our mind about a given topic to become a world-class expert on it. And so it, it's kind of this way by which we can uh, think about the information that we consume and consume it a bit better. Yeah, I like that a lot. And then you've even got in that chapter a whole bunch of tips on how to consume better information. One of the the big ones that uh, stood out to me was find things that are uh, both useful and entertaining. So instead of watching Netflix, maybe you you get entertainment value still from watching TED Talks, like maybe yours, which we'll link in the show notes. <laughs> but kind of shifting your preferences, you know, you can kind of hack your brain, I guess, if you want to, if you want to define it that way. But really what you're doing is you're, you're putting in more dots so that you can, when you're in the scatter focus mode, you can connect these things and, and create those inspirations, those revelations that uh, you wouldn't have been able to, had you not uh, been putting those dots in intentionally. Again, it comes back to the intentionality and mindfulness. What are you, what are you feeding on? Because garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, exactly. And, and the dots that we've consumed and, and collected and connected in the past, they influence how we see the world. You know, every management book, <laughs> if we're a manager, it, they influence how we uh, relate to our own management situation. Productivity books, as we're doing our work, we recall the lessons from them, hopefully, if, if they're any good. And we align ourselves to work a bit differently that way. Um, I, I, you know, if, if you're looking at the ocean, um, you, you might see the ocean, but an oceanographer might see um, the direction that they're, they're pointing in. Uh, a painter might see the color where, uh, where the sky meets the water and, and think about how they paint it. Um, you know, a marine biologist might think about all the creatures lurking beneath the surface. A pilot might think about the air quality and how choppy the waves are that day. And, and so, you know, it's a simple example, but it just shows that we see the dots that we've collected in the past are the lens through which we view the world through. 
And so when we consume trash, we're going to connect what we see to trash. <laughs> but if we consume uh, TED Talks and we consume books that change uh, the way we see the world um, and consume information that, like you said, is both uh, entertaining and useful, uh, we're able to uh, to amass a, a constellation of dots in our mind that we uh, that we're proud of and that that we want to become. And, and another strategy, because it's one of my favorites, is to get things to bid for your attention. And so whenever a new, uh, we were talking about the podcast that we subscribed to earlier, whenever a new, whenever a new podcast lands in your feed, or whenever a new uh, season of a TV show that you've been watching comes out, or whenever, uh, you know, you're about to watch an episode of something cable news related, look at the description of the show and decide whether something is worth your attention. And so your attention is valuable. You only have so much time to consume information every day. And so really read the synopses of books. Uh, really read uh, the descriptions of podcasts and get these things to bid for your attention because it's so valuable. I love it. I'm glad you called that one out. I think that's a great action item to to end this this podcast on. So we'll definitely include a link to your book in the show notes. And I definitely recommend that everybody go check out Hyperfocus, How to Be More Productive in a World of Distraction by Chris Bailey. And there's a ton of stuff that we did not get to, you know, the the what happens with the the lack of sleep, how to take more productive breaks. Um, I've got a, actually, I'm looking at right now, I've, I create a, a whole mind node for every book that I read. And this one is pretty big. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Chris. Well, like I said, we'll have a link to the book in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that you would like to point people where they can connect with you? I'm at a lifeofproductivity.com. That's my website. The The book, like you said, it's called Hyperfocus. It's in bookstores everywhere. Uh, my Twitter is uh, Chris underscore Bailey. I got a more professional one since the last time I was on. It was Wiggle Chicken before, so I'm upping the, uh, at the behest of my publisher, because <laughs> I'm writing some uh, op-eds for the Times and things like that. And they said, there's no way they're going to copy Wiggle Chicken, but they'll copy Chris Bailey. Um, so yeah, there's there's Twitter as well. And thank you. Um, I, I have to call you out a little bit, Mike, uh, because uh, as we record... I've, uh, I'm recovering from a concussion. Um, and so you've been very patient in the recording. We had to take a little break halfway through. Um, so I want to thank you as well. Uh, but it's it's been so nice to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Magic of podcasting. No one will even know. <laughs> As we talked about in today's episode, managing your attention is extremely important if you want to maximize your productivity. But that can be difficult when you feel overwhelmed. We know what it's like to have too much to do and not enough time to do it in. But you don't have to stay there. We've helped over 13,000 people make time for what's important to them and take action on their goals. If you're tired of never having enough time, you feel stuck, or you need a little help defeating the obstacles that stand between you and your ideal future, take a couple of minutes and complete our online productivity quiz. In just a couple minutes of your time, you can get a personalized recommendation on how to get unstuck and on your way to achieving success without the stress. To take the quiz, just go to theproductivityshow.com slash quiz. Again, that URL is theproductivityshow.com slash quiz. It will only take a couple of minutes of your time and you'll get results which show you the biggest areas for improvement 
as well as several curated resources to help you overcome the resistance that is keeping you from achieving your full potential. You can also find links to everything that we discussed today in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 213. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us an iTunes review or a star in Overcast. The show is on Twitter as at ProductivityFM. And if you want to get your questions answered and get mentioned on the show, you can send us a tweet with the hashtag AskTPS. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next Productive Monday.